Mike Slater. Thank you for being here, giving us some of your time. So the opening segment here was a hodgepodge. Did a hodgepodge, like five or six stories. I did not mean for them to all kind of weave together, but looking back on them, they all actually did. And it was all the callers today that helped me see how they weaved together. So we talked to, uh, like one of the stories that you got coming up here is about um, trades. And we had, so, we had a caller call in in this hour, and then we had someone call in at the end of the 7 o'clock hour, which then transitioned into an entire hour of phone calls in the 8 o'clock hour, all about the trades and different aspects that we'll talk more about as the week goes on. It's just beautiful. It's wonderful. Uh, so maybe these stories I shared in the beginning here do all tie in. start the show today with some random thoughts a bit of a hodgepodge to kick things off but it's a monday i feel like we need to uh do the best we can to accelerate to 60 there's this guy on twitter fisher king i don't know anything about him but he said as a thought experiment and i like thought experiments he said as a thought experiment imagine a society where only people who paid federal income tax could vote and anyone who received any sort of direct benefit, like welfare, et cetera, is ineligible. You would have an entirely different politics and debate. Who can vote determines the parameters of everything we hear in election styles, uh, cycles. So think about that. If all, you can only vote if you pay federal income tax. I mean, our founding fathers had something like this. You had to be a landowner. That was their version of it. They didn't have a federal income tax. So 1918. So they needed needed some way to say you can only vote if you have skin in the game. And that was their skin in the game. Today would be do you pay federal income taxes? That's the skin in the game. And if you don't, you can't vote. Isn't that amazing? How different would the entire political process be where the moochers and the looters have no say? Only the producers can, can vote. That could never happen. We could never get... You're denying people's rights. Georgia, remember when Georgia passed these voting laws? It, it, it made it easier for people to vote. It, it lengthened the amount of time you could vote before an election, before election day. And they were accused of Jim Crow 2.0. Remember Joe Biden said, oh, it's Jim Eagles. It's the worst thing ever. And then more people voted in the next election. Right? So imagine if there was actually a proposal to take away people's right to vote. It will never happen, but it's worth the thought experiment of what country we'd be living in if it were true, it'd be an entirely different one. Alas, start the week off daydreaming. So we have to overcome this hurdle forever. As the share of people who don't pay taxes and the share of people who are on welfare only increase over time, it's not a great trajectory we're on. But if you want to daydream a little longer, think about that. Imagine a society where only people who paid federal income tax, and if you receive any direct benefit, you cannot vote. How different would our country, how different would our politics be? Here's another thought, changing gears. Again, hodgepodge this morning. Uh, this is what we call hodgepodge. Um, when we're just having lunch or dinner as a family, and we just got a bunch of leftovers, it's hodgepodge. What, what's for dinner tonight? Ah, whatever, we, whatever we got. I don't know. Open up the fridge. We'll find 
Everyone has something different. Hodgepodge. Uh, this is from Cernovich. He said, is there anyone here who would have wanted George Floyd as your neighbor? Our morality is so fake and insufferable. And that is a fine question. Uh, another thought experiment. Would you rather want George Floyd as your neighbor or Derek Chauvin as your neighbor? Every single person on this country would rather have Derek Chauvin as a neighbor. Turns out the guy who stabbed Derek Chauvin, remember the story last week or so? The guy who stabbed him in prison was formerly an FBI informant for the Mexican mafia in LA and stabbed Chauvin while he was reading in the law library doing research about how to get himself out of prison. Which I suppose is a good thing to be doing if you're in the if you're in prison. Who would you rather have as your neighbor, George Floyd or Derek Chauvin? Okay, well, how about we start? Everyone's like knock off the knock it off with the ridiculous game. Uh, New York Assemblyman, he's on a hunger strike. Zoran Kwame Mamdani. He said, we've now been on a hunger strike here in Washington, D.C. for four days. He'd be on five days right now. Five days without any food. Five days of just water, Gatorade, and coconut water. Five days sitting outside the White House in the cold, calling on President Biden to support a permanent ceasefire. So I'm, I'm okay with hunger strikes. You can do whatever you want. Five days is nothing to write home about. You know, like five days is that's just a normal fast. It's not a huge deal. And I don't I don't know if you can have coconut water, to be honest, if you're doing it for real. That's a bit of a cheat. But uh, assemblymen or, or city councilmen, whatever you are, talk to me when you get to day 14. I'll be impressed when you get to, when, you get to, when your hunger strike gets to day 14. Of course, won't change anything. He's calling for a permanent ceasefire against Hamas. So you can, you can do a hunger strike for 40 days and it won't change my opinion on it. But at least I'll be impressed at your irrelevant effort uh, when you get to 14 days. You can send a tweet about it at day 14. I'll be like, oh, wow, good for you. Hunger strikes have really lost their, their, uh, their punch. When a couple of years ago, people, the left, you always, would, would, oh, we're going on a hunger strike. And I remember the media would make a big deal about it. It would happen a lot at the border here in San Diego. I don't know. I'm sure there's other places. They'd be like, oh, we're hunger strike at the border. And everyone's like, oh, my God, hunger strike. Oh, wow, hunger strike. And then you read about it, and they're really doing a hunger strike relay. They don't call it that, but that's it's a relay where someone would go 12 hours without eating, and then they pass it off to another person who would go another 12 hours without eating, and then to another, or they'd go back and forth, or there'd be a couple people, and you're like, uh, that's not really a hunger strike as much as skipping lunch. So I don't, you're not Gandhi here. If, <laughs> that's not what we're, you're like a little bit hungry after 12 hours. You can power through a 12-hour period. And then it's always so funny because they're setting themselves up for failure because they're just going to stop soon. It was so weak today. Like, like this guy, I don't know. He's at day five. Maybe he makes it to nine. <laughs> and it just goes away, and then that's the end of it. It's such a sign of our times, that the fact that we've watered down hunger strikes. And then it'll be like, oh, uh, hunger strike, but we allow smoothies. 
So, <laughs> so you just take your food and blend it up? Like, a, that's not it. You're still getting food. That's such a sign of our times. Maybe the sign of our times is hunger strike, and then he'll stop after seven days and claim victory. I like hunger strike stories. We'll keep an eye on this guy. Uh, here's some uh, numbers here. These are grades at Yale University. Grades at Yale University. Uh, what percentage of majors receive an A or an A minus? What percentage? Uh, in the econ majors, 52% get an A or an A minus. 52%. In math, 55%. So a lot of dummies take math and econ. Chemistry, 62%. Get an A or an A minus. Molecular biophysics, 63% of students get an A or an A minus. In other words, the reasons why college should still exist, like actual majors, actual sciences, sciences that don't have the word science in it. If a major has the word science in it, it's not a science. Like physics. <laughs> uh, physics, 66% are A's or A minuses. And then on the other side of the spectrum, uh, gosh, golly, wouldn't you see it? Here, look at this. The, the, the major with the most A's? What do you think? What major has the most A's? Uh, women's and gender and sexuality studies. <laughs> Women and gender and sexuality studies. 92% of, <laughs> of students get the A's. Oh, they're brilliant. The people in the women's and gender all are, are best and brightest are going into women's and gender studies, and they're just crushing it, 92%. Uh, the second highest, ethics, politics, and economics. What a completely phony major that is. Ethics, politics, and economics, what a joke. Uh, 92%. History of science and history of medicine, 92%. That's a fake thing, too. Education studies, 85%. What in the world is that? Ethnicity, race, and migration, 85%. These are all fake departments. And everyone's getting A's. How can how can how can someone in the administration not objectively look at that and say, "Oh, this is a this is a problem. This clearly is not accurate." I think they look at it and they're like, "Ah, oh, wow, math majors not as smart as the women's studies and sexuality majors." If you are hiring someone and they say they went to an Ivy League school for a long time. We've been trained to have a knee-jerk reaction of being impressed. You need to withhold any judgment until you ask them what their major was. And if it's a phony major, they get no credit for having went to an Ivy League school. 79% of Yale students get A's overall. 79%. These schools used to be rigorous when you're in them, and now they're literally impossible to fail out of. 79% get A's. What would be impressive, you want you want to know how these Ivy League schools can get back in the good graces of, uh, of people who know, is if only 79% of kids graduated. That, then you're like, oh, that's a, that's a difficult school. Like you got to get in. you got to work hard in order to graduate. Only 79% graduate. 79% get, get A's. 100% graduate. So someone commented on this about hiring Ivy League grads. And they said in the last 15 years, the growing perception is that the drama to value ratio for Ivy League grads is not worth it. That's probably right. Drama to value. Yeah, sure. Maybe they're smart and high achieving and all the rest, but oh, what a what a work. So much a work to hire them and keep them. Not worth it. Kurt 
Schlichter. He said, we had an Ivy League student show up wanting to be a law clerk. She was late to the first interview. But we chalked it up to the parking situation because it actually is kind of puzzling. Then she was late to the second interview. My partner met her at the door, told her to leave. She was stunned and offended. Apparently no one had ever told her no before. None of my lawyers are Ivy League and I would put them up against anybody. And do put them up against anybody and we win. Sorry. You're late again. See ya. The drama. The drama of hiring you. It's not worth whatever value you think you can bring to the deal here. Speaking of working, there's a picture going around. A couple pictures of people working at the Scranton Army Ammunition Plant. There's not many of these factories left that make bombs. They make our bombs. And these are quite striking pictures. Because I don't know what you would imagine a bomb-making facility to look like. But I think when we think factories today, I think, I think in the people who don't know anything about factories, you may work in a factory, so you have your perception of a factory. But I think most people who don't know anything about factories think that all factories look like the BMW car manufacturing assembly line where it's giant robots and like the big, huge robot, and then pristine white factory floors. And it's, uh, you know, glass on uh, one wall's glass. So, like tours can come by and watch these factories. That's not what this, the Scranton Army ammunition plant looks like. These are filthy, like coal mining factories in a giant old brick building. But here's the most striking thing. All of the men in the assembly line, all of them are well over 50, if not in their 60s. And there are, at least in these pictures that are going around, there are no young people in this factory. What in the world is going to happen in definitely 10 years when all these guys are not working at the factory anymore? Who is going to work here? I don't even know if if you hired a a bunch, an army recruiting of like a whole factory of young people. I don't even know if there's enough time to train the young people to do an effective job now. If you start now, where are the young people? Who's going to take over making our bombs? We're going to outsource that to China too? And it's not just obviously making bombs. The average age of an electrician in America is 41. Plumbers, 41. Construction worker, average age, 42. Where are the 22-year-old electricians who are pushing that average further down? Actually, you know what? It ties into the American dream. Last week, we talked about the, uh, the American dream a lot. And we, uh, we talked about what I would describe as the poorly and inaccurately defined American dream. And when you do that, one of the ways of American Dream was uh, new home. Everyone, everyone has to own a home. So we poorly defined the American Dream, which led to very bad policy, and we saw a massive housing collapse. And part of the other, another part of the American Dream that we poorly defined is that everyone's got to go to college. Everyone's got to go to a four-year college. And we've yet to see the, the full social impact of that. We see it with debt. We see it with debt. 
Oh, I got to find this fact. Let me find it during the break. It is. Uh, it breaks down the people who have paid their college debt back, men and women. And it's the women who haven't paid their debt back, which is interesting. I'll give you the numbers for that in a minute. But we've been pushing kids into four-year degrees. And other than the debt, we don't even see the full effect of that because one of the consequences is we literally won't have people making things. We don't, we don't have people making things here. There won't be enough people to work at the Scranton Army Ammunition Plant. What do we do? Oh, they all went to four-year colleges. Too good for that. We had a roofer call in the other day. And he said he's worked his whole life, hard work, wanting to give the, the best life possible to his kids. And he offered his, I think, two kids, I think he said, uh, opportunities in the roofing world to stay in the family business and, and connections that he had that they could take advantage of. And uh, they each said, too hard, don't want to. And we're like, oh, good for you, America Dream. Right? The America Dream is to live a better life than uh, what, your, what your father did. So dad's a roofer, and now these kids are going to go off to college, and they're going to go live a uh, safer, or I don't know, like an easier life. Okay, great. Uh, who's going to put the roofs on our houses? Uh, Guatemalans. That's it. Bring in the illegals. Problem solved. So what are you worried about? The Americans will go to college, and the illegals will do all the work that the Americans don't want to do. The institutional knowledge that we lose when the people who have been doing these jobs for decades leave the job and they have no one to pass it down to, that's incalculable. You, you lose generations of institutional knowledge. Remember the colonial, is it the colonial, is that what it's called? The colonial pipeline? There was that, this ransomware attack. It was 2021. Do you remember that? It, didn't get a, it got a lot of news in the moment, but then it kind of just went away. It was the largest cyber attack on oil infrastructure in American history. And the CEO was in front of Congress, and they asked him, uh, I think it was, um, I forget the senator's name. He, uh, he's like, hey, can't, like, can't you just put it on manually? Like, can't you just turn the pipeline on? And he said, no, because the people who know how to run it manually, they're, they're dead. They're gone. So we can't. We can only run it with computers, and this hacker group has the computer, so there's no oil for anyone on the East Coast. Sorry, can't just turn it on with our hands. What a metaphor. I mean, it's more than a metaphor. It's like a real thing. But how is that true for like, many other things? When the baby boomer generation, when they're out of the workforce, who's going to be left running the show? It doesn't, I don't know the answer to that. I don't, I don't know. If, I don't know. I don't like the answer to that, whether it's industries where there will be no one taking over, like different manufacturing jobs or critical infrastructure jobs or like real jobs with their hands, electrician or whatever, or these industries are going to be taken over and run by millennials who you wouldn't want <laughs> taking over anything. There are no middle-aged men working the lines at this Scranton Army Ammunitions Plant. There are no middle-aged men. They're older. They're older than middle-aged working at this plant. Someone wrote on Twitter, they said, do you suppose the espresso machine in the break room has a choice of soy or almond milk? 
You with me on that? So if you if you brought in a younger guy, let's say you brought in one of these college grads who wants to slum it and rough it with the real men, with the calloused hands, and he walks in and he says, uh, what, what, um, what kind of espresso machine do you have in the break room? Do you have soy milk there or no? No soy milk? Oh, I can't work here. Welcome back to Breitbart News Daily. You're going to hear all about this COP28 thing going on in Dubai, of all places. The Pope chimed in, but it's not really just about the Pope. There's other lessons here to be learned as well. Dr. Thomas Williams is in Rome. We've talked with him. You're going to hear a lot over the next couple of days here of the United Nations Climate Change Conference. It's called COP28. Uh, COP stands for Conference of the Parties. And why the 28th? It's the 28th time they've all met. So all these, all the elites, it's in Dubai. <laughs> <laughs> in Dubai, the uh, Munich airport, there's a video, picture this weekend of the private jets all frozen on the runways. So they couldn't quite get to the conference in time. The planes are literally frozen to the runway. It's pretty pricey. Thomas D. Williams is here. Dr. Williams, Breitbart News, Rome Bureau Chief. Dr. Williams, how you doing, sir? Mike Slater, what a pleasure to be with you. Uh, yeah, I was I was laughing my head off when I saw the, the frozen planes. I mean, the hypocrisy is so thick, and, but it, it is very ironic that they got stuck to the runway. I mean, what are we doing? Like, you couldn't you couldn't write that one any better. That's that's too much of a, of a layoff. Um, so I wanted to ask you because, a couple of things. Uh, the Pope chimes in chimed in on this. Um, he said it has now become clear that the climate change presently taking place stems from the overheating of the planet caused chiefly by the increase of greenhouse gases in the atmosphere due to human activity, uh, unsustainable for our ecosystem. And then the conclusion, the footprint of a few nations is responsible for a deeply troubling ecological debt. Therefore, it would be only fair to find suitable means of remitting the financial debts that burden other peoples, not least in light of the ecological debt that they are owed, uh, so I want to ask you, sir, like being a good steward of the planet, great biblical value, wonderful. Why, though, does the Pope go to this redistribution of wealth through global government schemes as the solution? Well, I fear, Mike, that this just goes back to his history, uh, his his roots. I think he, uh, especially now later on in his pontificate, he resembles more and more one of these petty uh, Latin American dictators. <laughs> Honestly, he's... Uh, he he just has allied himself with uh, global left-wing causes. He is good, good friends with Antonio Guterres over at the Secretary General at the United Nations. He has bought into uh, the stories that are told about climate change. He refuses to look at anything that doesn't uh, that doesn't uh, follow that certain consensus. And uh, and so he's just admired in this idea that the world is ending. And uh, and frankly, it's very theological, it's theologically suspect as well. Honestly, he's taken a a very apocalyptic stance, which you know I know kind of flies in the face of Christian hope and an understanding of of God as the Lord of the universe rather than human beings. 
But anyway, I, I think that it's just a very, very problematic situation uh, with the only upside being that I don't think terribly many people are listening to him. Mm. That's a very big but anyways. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is an interesting figure of speech. You have the yada, 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 but you did a but anyways. It's like, no, 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 no. That's a, that's a pretty big thing that you just spoke over briefly that he seems to be missing. Well, yeah, I, I think it is. And I think that, you know, it, it's interesting because many of us early on sensed that there was something very fishy about this forced, uh, and I, you know, say this in, in quotation marks, forced scientific consensus surrounding the idea of climate change. And now it's becoming more and more clear. And now more and more scientists are speaking out and saying, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yes, the planet's gotten a little warmer, but that doesn't mean that there is any kind of a, of a climate emergency or crisis. And, and, and so the, unfortunately, the Pope is still back on that. And I think that that's, it's something that's been manipulated in order to burden first world nations, particularly the United States, which, as we know, unfortunately, the Pope really does not care for at all. He would like to see the U.S. taxed to pay for the rest of the world. He'd like to see it kind of downgraded as as world power. Um, but fortunately, there are enough of us out there, I think, that are not looking for that. And I don't think we're going to let it let it happen. Uh, you wrote an article about a week ago about what the pope did to Cardinal Raymond Burke and uh, taking away his Vatican apartment and taking away his monthly salary. Uh, what, what's what's the story here? What happened? Well, this is another thing. I, I think that as he senses that the end is near, that his own uh, pontificate is drawing to a close, he is tying up a lot of loose ends. And we've seen him j just in one month, just in the month of November, uh, he punished, publicly punished two conservative prelates. One was uh, the Bishop of Tyler, Texas, uh, who, whom he basically deposed from his from his uh, from his diocese. He was only 65 years old, so he had 10 years left to retirement. But he said, no, you are no longer going to be uh, the bishop here. And then his old nemesis, Cardinal Burke, Cardinal Burke, by the way, who has always said publicly, I am no enemy of the pope. I will speak up when I think he's wrong about things. I will because it's my obligation as a cardinal. But I, I have no ill will toward the pope and I do not consider him my enemy. And Pope Francis comes back now, and behind this closed-door meeting, but we have lots of confirmation of what exactly was said, the Pope called him my enemy, Cardinal Burke, and he said that I'm taking away his Rome apartment, and I'm taking away this monthly stipend he gets as a retired cardinal. And, you know, I think for any objective observer, this is just pure vindictiveness, because Cardinal Burke can do nothing to him. Cardinal Burke has done nothing to him. Um, he's challenged him on some issues, issues. You know, initially, early on in his pontificate, Pope Francis said, I want to be questioned. I want to be challenged. If you have criticisms, bring them on. But, you know, it turned out to be evident very quickly, very quickly on that that was not true. He did not want that. And anytime anybody has spoken up or questioned anything he's done, he has shown himself to be very, very thin-skinned and very vindictive. Uh, I read that this, this pope in question here, Raymond Burke, uh, he was criticizing the, the Vatican on their new-ish waning stance on homosexuality? Is there truth to that? That is part of it. Uh, he's been, actually, Cardinal Burke has been critical of a number of things. He's been very critical of the Pope's uh, coming down on his harsh restrictions on the traditional Latin Mass. 
Uh, he, he really thinks the Pope went way too far in rolling back provisions that were laid out by Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict XVI before him. And he has just kind of tightened the noose around the neck of the traditional Latin mass. That's one thing. He has also criticized the Pope's openness to reevaluating the, the theology, the moral theology behind um, homosexual relations, because this is something Cardinal Burke He's not a gay hater. He's not a homophobe, but he does believe what Catholics have always taught, which is that sex is sacred between two people in marriage, a man and a woman. That, that's what it's for. It's not for, you know, other these other expressions. And so, you know, this is something that he's kind of drawn the line on. Um, another thing recently was this move by the Pope to bring in this new synodal method, this idea that that the way uh, decisions should be made in the church are through these synodal meetings, um, which are very easy to manipulate. These are bureaucratic uh, meetings. They obviously don't involve most of the faithful. They involve people who like that kind of thing. And usually the loudest with the strongest progressive causes are the ones who really end up co-opting them. So all these things kind of just this cluster of issues are things that Cardinal Burke has found really unacceptable about where Pope Francis is leading the church. And he has said so. He said so respectfully, but he's also said so clearly. I got, uh, we got about 45 seconds. I saw uh, Dr. Williams, a, a video and I, I had no context to it at all. So that's what I'm asking where the Pope was sitting there in his chair and there was like a, like a carnival or a carnival, I suppose, taking place around him. Do you know the video I'm talking about? And it was, I thought it was AI. I thought it was made up. And there were all these like circus performers dancing all around him and provocatively. So it was a very bizarre thing. What, what was it? No, yeah, that, yeah, that happened recently. That happened. I don't think that the Pope always has control over those things. This is, I'll just say one thing in his favor in this case. Yeah. I don't think this is something that he knew was going to happen and he signed up for. He does allow a lot of things to happen like that. And, and, he's, and if they say to him in the Vatican, you know, we're bringing in some performers and they really want to do this thing for you. He says, okay, you know, and I don't think it's necessarily well, it's his on his people, that, that, right? Isn't it on the people to kind yeah. of control the optics of this? Abs absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, where's the, the it, it seems yeah. lacking reverence, but I don't even know what that is. Like, what is that moment that he that where people come and do stuff? That was at that was at a weekly general audience in the Paul VI Hall within the Vatican. Uh, so they were invited in and they did this little act, this little show in front of the Pope and in front of all the people who were gathered for his weekly teaching moment, this general audience that he does every Wednesday. Uh, yeah, it was. I, I saw the video too, and it was disrespectful. I agree with you. I, I wonder how like far reverence. people and, will will push that as uh as yeah. time goes on that'll be very interesting to see what and, and like knowing like they'll know what they're doing is inappropriate just for the sake of doing dr thomas williams uh live in rome uh, uh thomas wonderful to talk to you sir thank you you too mike thanks a million great work great reports on breitbart.com there's a very surreal video oh by the way um this rolling back of the idea uh, i shouldn't say rolling back the rolling forward of gay theology even in the catholic church uh, one of the best defenses of gay marriage I've ever, or against gay marriage, traditional marriage, I'd say, is that just Google Alan Keyes on the challenge of gay marriage. And there's a 90 minute uh, lecture that he gives off the cuff on the top of his dome piece. It's brilliant. I'm American made. I got American parts. I got Thanks for listening to Breitbart News Daily. Again, we had. Like, I don't know, maybe two hours of phone calls today uh, that were great. So many different themes. And the one that we just wrapped up the show with, so it's on top of mind, 
is this idea that young people today don't want to get dirty. They're unwilling to do a job that requires you to get dirty. Like, what? Where did that come from? Where did this aversion, it's not even the right word, there's a different word I gotta find, aversion to dirt happen? What's that about? Chat about that and others tomorrow. Mike Slater, Breitbart News Daily. Spread the word. I